Please take your Bibles now and let's turn to Micah, the book of Micah, chapter 5. We will read verses 1 through 8. Now hear God's word. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Will you pray with me as we come to God's word? Our God and our Father, how grateful we are for your word and for the fact that it isn't just words about you written by imperfect people, but that through imperfect people, you, Father, in your perfect wisdom and by your Holy Spirit, have caused these words to be breathed out such that they are your words such that they are infallible and therefore inerrant. And we know, God, that they are living and active according to your word itself. And so we praise you that we have the privilege of coming to your word and being exposed to its living, active power in our lives. And so, Father, we would ask this morning that by your word you would continue the great work that you have begun in us of transforming us by the renewing of our minds according to your word. Help us to understand this morning. Help us to be convinced of the truth of your word this morning. Convicted, Father, of all sin that it may expose in our lives. And assured, Father, that your pardon for us in Christ Jesus is sure and true. That you are our God. That we are your people indelibly. And Father, may the words of my mouth this morning and the meditations of our hearts upon your holy word today be Be pleasing in your sight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we draw near now this week to Christmas this year, 2021, and as we focus our minds on everything that God the Son did to draw near to us in the incarnation by becoming incarnate in the human person of Jesus Christ who came to make a way for us then as lost sinners to be forgiven and to draw near to the Holy God by cleansing us and raising us to newness of life. As we contemplate all of that, we're going to spend our time this morning in God's Word reflecting on this passage that Stan just read and one other one, two Old Testament prophecies about the advent, the coming, the appearing of the long-awaited Messiah. And these two passages highlight for us 
the wonderful mystery of the incarnation of God the Son in human flesh in a way that I think is so critically important for us to understand and bring such great comfort to our hearts and our lives as we live in this world. And both of these passages, one here from the prophet Micah and the other one from the book of Numbers, which we're actually going to look at first. So if you want to keep your thumb in Micah and head over to the book of Numbers first, both of these passages have something to say about where the Messiah would come from when he was born in this world. One of the passages speaks very generally, and one speaks much more specifically, and together they highlight the wonder of God's ways as he works out his purposes in this world and in our lives. And that's what I want for us to meditate on this morning. So let's start with the first passage, which is the more general statement of where the Messiah would come from. And it's in the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book in the Bible. So if you haven't already, turn there and take a look at Numbers chapter 24. And we're just going to look at a few brief verses and words there. Some context as you're turning there. You'll know... If you've read any part or studied the Old Testament at all, that Numbers chapter 24 is a part of this sort of bizarre story about a pagan king named Balak and a pagan false prophet named Balaam, who's most famous perhaps for his donkey. It's a weird story, isn't it? The setting for this story, geographically, is the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River, if you picture your Bible maps in your mind, east of the Promised Land. And so the children of Israel had come up out of Egypt after 400 long years of slavery, and they've been, they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their unbelief and the sin that came from their unbelief and the judgment of God that had come upon them and caused them to just wander around until that unbelieving generation all died off. And now at this point in the book of Numbers, it had. The, the unbelieving generations, they've all died off. A new generation that's more faithful and trusting in the Lord has been raised up and they're ready now to enter into the promised land. And they've come up from the south and up to the eastern border of the promised land just across the Jordan River and they're ready to go in and take the land that God has promised to them. And a story, this story of of Balaam happens at this point, just before they go into the promised land. This is just before the death of Moses. They've come up to this area that's known as the plains of Moab, and by God's hand, they've been able to defeat two enemy kings, Sihon of the Amorites and and King Og of Bashan. God has given them marvelous, supernatural, unexpected victory over these pagan kings who had greater strength, greater army, greater military might and experience than the Israelites. So now that these inexplicable victories have been granted, there's a third pagan king, a third enemy that they've got to get past in order to get into the promised land, and he's the one named Balak. He's the king of Moab. And he's heard, see, that the children of Israel are, are knocking on his door, are in his territory, and that they've managed somehow by the power of their God to defeat these two other kings. And so Balak and all of the people of Moab, they're, they're pretty much freaking out about what the Israelites are going to do to them next and to their armies. And so wicked King Balak of Moab decides that the best course of action is for him to hire himself a prophet who would go and curse the Israelites in order to try to break the power of their God and, and, and help him be able to defeat them in battle. So, that's what he does. He sins for a prophet. A pagan prophet, not a prophet of God. A pagan prophet, an unbeliever, 
named Balaam. And he hires him to curse the people of Israel. So Balaam, if you've heard this story, understand he had no more respect for the God of Israel than he had for any of the false gods of the pagan people of Moab. Balaam's just a prophet for hire. He's, he's just an opportunist. He's an equal opportunity false prophet. He doesn't discriminate. He doesn't care which God he presumes to speak for. But as soon as Balaam gets the message that the king of the Moabites wants him to come and curse the Israelites, the true God of heaven spoke directly to Balaam in a dream and told him, these are my people and they are blessed by me, so do not dare go out to curse them. And even though Balaam wasn't a believer in God, when God spoke to him, he listened. You would too. And so he went and he told King Balak, I I won't do it. I'm not going to curse these people because their God spoke to me and warned me not to. But Balak was desperate, so Balak persisted. He wouldn't take no for an answer. And finally, he offered Balaam enough that Balaam came because his greed outweighed his fear of the Lord. King kept offering him more and more money. So here comes Balaam to meet with Balak and to curse the Israelites. And on his way there, an angel of the Lord appears and came out to stop him. And the donkey that Balaam was riding on saw the angel and stopped dead in its tracks and had the common sense that Balaam himself lacked to not go any further. And so Balaam, being the greedy fool that he was, got mad at the donkey and started beating it, started abusing the animal. At which point, next, God opens the donkey's mouth and the donkey essentially says, Hey, what did I ever do to you? Why are you beating me? Now, look, if it's me right at this point, God has spoken to me in a dream, and I'm still on my way to defy Him. Now the donkey's talking. And if it's me, that's when I get off the donkey and just go home. Turn around, I don't care how long it is, just walk home, I'm done. The donkey's talking. But at this point, Balaam's heart is so hardened by greed and he's become so stubborn that he actually starts to to argue with the donkey. So then the angel made himself visible not only to the donkey, but to Balaam. Balaam saw him, big, glorious, fearsome seraph, angel of the Lord, with a sword in his hand, who speaks to Balaam and tells Balaam that, look, the only reason I haven't killed you yet is that your donkey had the good sense to stop when he saw me. So, you should stop beating the donkey and go home. So again, now, if it's me, (laughs) at this point in the story... And the angel's now starting to talk. I'd really just hightail it out of there. But Balaam saw dollar signs, shekels, kept on going, met King Balak. When he got there, God put a prophecy in Balaam's mouth so that when Balaam opened his mouth to speak to King Balak of the Moabites, What actually came out of Balaam's mouth was not Balaam's words, but the word of the Lord. And that just kept on happening whenever Balaam opened his mouth to speak. Even when Balak said, I don't, stop that, I want you to curse the Israelites. Everything that Balaam said ended up being a blessing. And a glorification of the Most High God instead of a curse. So that's, that's where the story gets picked up in Numbers chapter 24. This is actually the fourth time in this chapter that Balaam ends up prophesying the word of God. 
And it's really starting to make King Balak angry. But this time, and this is the fourth part of the fourth prophecy, this time what God has to say through Balaam does involve a curse, but of course it's not a curse for the Israelites, it's a curse on Balak and on the people of Balak, on the Moabites. And Numbers 24 is this curse, and it's not just for the Moabites. It's also, if we were to take the time, which we won't, but to read through the chapter, it's also a curse that gets proclaimed on the Edomites. And not just them, but also the Amalekites and the Kenites from the land of Cain and the Asherites. And in fact, in Numbers 24, what God is doing here is pronouncing a curse on all of the wicked nations and peoples of the world and the world itself who persist in unbelief and refuse to honor Him as God. Who shall live when God does this? Look at verse 23. Who shall live when God does this? And that's the whole essence of this prophecy here in Numbers 24. God's going to make an end of wicked people in this world and of evil itself in this world all over this whole earth. And look at verse 17. Who's going to do that? Who's going to carry out the end of evildoers and evil in this world eventually? I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So someone's coming in order to exact this judgment of God on the wickedness of this world, but not yet, not now in Balaam's time. Sometime far off in Balaam's future. And where is this person going to come from? That's our Advent question, right? Why did Jesus come? Where did Jesus come from? To whom did Jesus come? Verse 17 goes on, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheth. And then the rest of the prophecy goes on to list all of the other wicked kingdoms and rulers of the earth that this coming star, this coming ruler, this coming king will destroy, including all of the wickedness in the world. As the coming king establishes dominion over the whole planet, over the whole earth. Now, When we hear prophecies in Scripture, usually there's a sense, we call it, when we study this theologically, these aren't even sophisticated terms, we call it a sense of the already and the not yet. There's an already sense in which the prophecy begins to get unfolded in the near term to when the prophecy was given, but it will be ultimately fulfilled in the far term. And so all of the things that God was doing in the Old Testament were pointing to and were foreshadowing and typifying and illustrating the far greater exodus and deliverance and redemption that God was going to accomplish in Jesus. And that's what's going on here too. There's going to be a a beginning of God establishing dominion in this world and crushing and and destroying evil and ruling with a rod of iron that will then carry on and culminate in an ultimate way when this ruler appears somewhere in the future. And so, some of it already happens as the promised land is conquered and as the people of Israel become established there and as David becomes the king of Israel and ends up destroying the Edomites and the Amalekites and other godless pagan nations. But this prophecy is looking beyond David to a more ultimate king, to an ultimate victor who would forever one day lay conquest to all of the evil in the world. So this is ultimately a prophecy of the Messiah, of Jesus who was the son of David. He was the star, Numbers twenty four seventeen, 
who was going to come. In ancient cultures, stars always were used to be indicative of royalty. Almost all ancient cultures tied the birth of a king to some phenomenon in the heavens. Some astrological thing. Jesus was no exception to that, was He? When the Magi saw the star in the east and followed it to Bethlehem, they knew it indicated, it says, they knew it indicated that the King of the Jews was to be born. How did they know that? Because in their studies, they had come into contact with the Old Testament Scriptures, very possibly this very one, and believed that this was now being fulfilled in the land of Israel. A star would appear, God said. A scepter would come. That's another unmistakable sort of emblem of of royalty. The scepter was what the king held in order to demonstrate and, and prove his authority, power, dominion. A king is coming, is what God was saying through Balaam who will be a king of all kings, who will be king one day over the whole earth, who will crush all the nations in His righteousness. And here's the point I want for us to see today. Where would this king of kings come from? A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now, We're all very, very familiar with Jacob, whose name in Genesis was changed to Israel. And we're all very, very familiar from our Old Testament history that the nation of Israel is the nation of people that grew up out of Jacob's offspring. And we're so familiar with that that it's really easy for us to miss the significance of God's words here in Balaam's day because in Balaam's day, Nobody knew who Jacob was. In Jacob's day, Israel was barely a nation. They hadn't even been settled yet into their homeland. They're just wandering around like nomads in the wilderness is this point. Nobody would heard of them before this. They're not on anyone's radar. They're not on anyone's map. Literally yet. They're they're literally just a bunch of nomads. Not some big, mighty, dominant Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Syria, power of the earth. You see, the point is no one would ever expect that a powerful king of all kings would ever rise up out of this little ragtag band of nomadic refugees who came stumbling out of the desert. But see, that's exactly how God does things, isn't it? It's perfectly consistent, right? With the ways that God loves to operate in this world and in our lives. Think about the history. Wasn't Jacob... Esau's little brother? The second born twin. The birthright should never have been his. The nation should never have come from him. The blessing should never have been of him. He stole it. He deceived his father and his brother. He extorted it. He lied. He schemed. He tricked his blind dad in his old age. And yet, It was through Jacob, not Esau, that God brought the promise to fulfillment. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated before any of them were even born and done anything. And wasn't Jacob the son of Isaac? Whose name means what? Yitzhak. Laughter. Why? Because Abraham and Sarah, in their old age, when Sarah had been barren, 
And Abraham, it says, was as good as dead. He was so old. God said, you're going to have a baby. And they laughed. She laughed at him. I'm going to have a baby, God. Sure. So, and, and, and didn't they, when God made that promise, try to bring the promise to pass in their own way? Sarah said, if you and I are having a baby, it's not coming from my body. So you should try conceiving a son through my handmaid. And that's how Ishmael was born. I mean, think about the history. Didn't God constantly throw off all human convention and expectation, go against all earthly human tradition, and do things that seemed absolutely impossible by human standards? He did. He did. He, he worked through an elderly, barren woman. He worked in spite of sin and unbelief. He worked apart from human traditions and birthrights. He did it all his way so that it could never ever be said that the promises of God came about by the regular, ordinary, natural, traditional means and courses of this world. Or by the schemes or by the designs of men. But in spite of all of that. Now you see the relevance, right? In spite of all of this. God is pleased to glorify himself. And so over and over and over again, all throughout Scripture, God works in such a way as to leave no other way for anyone to explain the fulfillment of God's promises other than His sovereign purposes and works. And He's, he's doing it here again. The King of all kings, the star, the scepter, who will crush the unrighteousness of the world under the dominion of His holiness is going to come from Jacob. It's going to come from Israel. And everybody listening is saying, sorry, who now? Never heard of Jacob. Never, never heard of Israel. I'm looking on my map. I'm not, I'm not seeing an Israel there. This is how God works. He works in ways that assure that all the credit, all the glory goes to Him alone. And that brings us to Micah. So flip back to Micah. Which gets more specific in answering the question... Where will Messiah come from and where will Messiah come to? So Micah was a prophet in the history of Old Testament who was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. And the theme of Micah's prophecy is similar to Isaiah's. It's, 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 it's in the context of the same historical events that Isaiah is prophesying about. And the main thrust of their prophecies is that because of the sin of the northern kingdom of Israel, God is going to send the mighty, powerful nation of Assyria to invade the northern kingdom and not just punish them and then go away, but absolutely decimate them in the 8th century B.C., Judgment's going to come flooding down from the north at the hands of the Assyrian Empire a few hundred years before judgment would come on the south at the hands of the Babylonians. That's what was going on. So, so those, were, those were hard days, dark days, terrible days for the people of the northern kingdom. That's what was happening then. And God was saying through Isaiah, see what's going on in the north because of their sin? It's coming to the south too, for the same reason. And here in Micah, a lot of Micah's prophecies, if you read it, if you read through it, there's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of gloominess. Because that's what was going on. That's what they were experiencing. That was their reality. They weren't running around singing joy to the world under Christmas trees. It was hard because God's judgments were against His people and were being 
promised in the future against his people because of all of their sin and their idolatry, but then mingled in with all the gloom are these wonderful statements and glimpses of a a, a coming future glory for the remnant of Israel, for the true people of God, for the ones whose hearts weren't hard and full of rebellion towards God and who, who trusted God and in spite of the fact that, that their countrymen were full of unbelief, they were living by faith and humility and, and in repentance. That's the context of Micah. Over in chapter 6 and verse 7, God tells His people what He wants from them. If there's ever going to be a glorious future for them, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? He's talking about the sacrifices that the people give. And he's saying, you could, you could just multiply those sacrifices over and over. And I'm, that's not what I want, ultimately. It even goes so far to say, if you would look there at chapter 6 and verse 7, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, sacrificial, thousands of rivers, rivers of oil being offered to God in the temple? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my own body for the sin of my soul. And so, listen, the, the point, it's a rhetorical question. The point is this, that the sin of the people is so grave that thousands upon thousands of sacrifices of animals and, and literally thousands of rivers of ceremonial oil and even the sacrifice of somebody's own firstborn son wouldn't cover the sin. God's just saying, you have no idea how desperate it is. First of all, because their sin was so great, they were doing horrible things. And second of all, because their hearts were so corrupt that even the sacrifices that they were making were just, were just polluted with hypocrisy and greed. And so God was saying, I don't, that's not what I want. I don't want your sacrifices. These outward displays mean nothing to me. And then he goes on and he says, He has told you, O oh man, what is good. Here's what I want. What does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You see what he wants? I don't want your stuff. I don't want your, just your, your outward obedience. I want hearts that love, that love me, that love each other, out of which outward obedience and acts of kindness and justice and mercy come. That's what he wants. God is saying that a humble faith in Him, in His goodness, His faithfulness, His mercies that are new every morning, that inclines our hearts to be full of mercy, which leads to lives that seek justice and love instead of selfishness and greed and sin. And that's what God wants. But see, in Israel, in Micah's day, that's not what was going on. In those days, the people... And all of them, even the leaders, even the priests, even the prophets, their hearts were not full of humble dependence on God, trust in God, love for God, love from God to one another. They're not full of mercy and compassion and justice and integrity. Everything was just the outside of the cup. But on the inside, corruption. So see, they didn't just need moral reform. They didn't just need behavioral modification. They needed new hearts. So the question that God is bringing up in the book of Micah, the central thing, is this. Is there any hope for these people whose hearts are so black and whose Outward shows of righteousness are so hypocritical and fake and flimsy. Is there any hope of God pouring out mercy and forgiveness in spite of all their corruption and sin and in spite of all of His holy wrath and judgment? If you look over at the end of the book, 
chapter 7, verse 18. God leaves no doubt whatsoever. Who is a God like you? Pardoning this iniquity. Passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. Oh. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. He will show faithfulness to Jacob in spite of Jacob. Steadfast love to Abraham, even though he laughed at you, as you have sworn to our fathers from the day of old. There's hope ahead for Israel because God is God. He is mercy. He is love. And if they will repent and turn to Him and be full of His love and do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with Him, there's hope. But see, how? How are they going to do that? If there's one thing that the Old Testament teaches us about human nature, it's that no matter how many chances sinful humans get, no matter how bad the consequences of, 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 of sinful human actions are, or on the other side, no matter how, how good the rewards of outward obedience are, time and time again, over and over and over, sinful people prove that we can't by ourselves live the way God requires us to live. You want me to love justice, but my heart doesn't. I mean, 400 years in captivity in Egypt under Pharaoh and, and God raised up Moses and miraculously they, they were freed. Red Sea parting, manna from heaven, water from rocks. And as we've seen time and time again, they're just bickering against God, even so. Out there in the wilderness, being led to the promised land, being delivered from 400 years, and they go, we wish we could go back to Egypt, because this isn't any fun out here in the wilderness. That's how hard their hearts were. Or the book of Judges, how many times God would raise someone up to discipline His people, and then raise someone up in His mercy to deliver His people, a judge, to redeem them because God's merciful and full of steadfast love. But every time, as soon as the deliverance came, they just fall right back into sin. This is a human heart, the, the testimony of the human heart that the Old Testament just gives over and over and over. Genesis 6, right? From the outset, the only inclination of our hearts is only evil all the time. Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things and so desperately sick that no one can possibly even comprehend it. It feels hopeless, doesn't it? Do you ever look at your heart and go, yep, oh, who will save me from this body of sin? You know the answer, right, that follows those words of Paul? In Romans chapter 7, praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now see, this is what the Old Testament is leading us to. Through every season of judgment, through all the laws that were given, through every drop of sacrificial blood shed from every animal year after year after year, God's just putting how desperately wicked human hearts are. He's putting that on display and saying to humans, look, no matter what outward motivation you're given and no matter how hard you try, you can't do it. That's the point that I want you to get. You can't love mercy on your own. You can't do justice. You can't walk humbly with your God because your hearts are hard. Because you are spiritually dead and unable to do it. So see, the point here in Micah is you don't just need to be redeemed from the Assyrians. 
You don't just need to be saved and freed from the coming Babylonians. You don't just need another cycle of discipline followed by merciful deliverance from an earthly enemy or problem or circumstance. You need to be delivered from the sinful, wicked, hard-hearted rebellion in you that brought all that judgment of God in the first place. The greatest enemy isn't out there. It's right in here. And the other side of that coin is your greatest hope isn't here in what you can do. It's out there. The one who's coming. The ruler. The king who would come and rule the world by governing the hearts of his people And in that sense, the increase of his government will never end. Isaiah calls him the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the prince of peace, the everlasting father. So, all that brings us to this, in Micah, this more specific answer to the question of where the Messiah, Savior, King would come from. So now now chapter 5, sorry, we're all over the place here. He says that the coming ruler is going to come not just from Jacob like Balaam had unwittingly prophesied way back in Numbers. Not just from Israel, but very, very specifically he's going to come from Bethlehem. And that's significant for two reasons. One, because of the name of that place. And two, because of the size of that place. The name Bethlehem in Hebrew, Bet Lechem. Bet is house. Lechem is bread. It's the house of bread. Isn't that that the perfect name for the city that the eternal bread of life would come from? Isn't that what Jesus called himself in John chapter 6? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the living bread that came down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. What's he mean? Did he mean physically? No, you know what? There's people who think that. They miss the point so badly. Jesus meant, is your greatest need physical, people? Is your greatest hunger physical hunger? Then is your greatest need physical bread? Come on. What's Jesus' point here? What needs to be fed is not my stomach, it's my soul. Jesus meant that He came to do what everything in the Old Testament is screaming needs mostly to be done, which is to give new life to my soul. And the only way for that to happen is by Him shedding His blood and sacrificing Himself on the cross. That's why He was born in a little town called Bethlehem. To become... Food for my dead and emaciated, starving soul. To give life. To give it abundantly. To give it to the uttermost. And then to sustain it. And to grow it. And to protect it. And preserve it. And provide for it. And and build it up by that same food that He is. So here, Micah 5, verse 4. Look what it says about the ministry of this coming one. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, all capitals, Yahweh, the great I Am. In the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God shall he shepherd his people. That's the best news. The word shepherd there in Hebrew means to pasture them. What is a shepherd doing when he's pasturing his sheep? 
He's, he's taken them out there to graze, right? He's taken them out there to eat. John 1.10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. Peter says that we were once straying like sheep, but now we have returned to the great shepherd who is the overseer of our souls, who feeds us, who pastures us, who nourishes us with true food and true drink that only He can supply. So verse 4 here of this text, and Micah says that he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall therefore dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And every one of us needs God's strength, God's grace, God's protection. Because we're, we're as hopeless as sheep to protect ourselves, to provide for ourselves, to lead ourselves out of harm's way and into the good pastures. He doesn't leave us to find our own food. He's the one who leads us to green pastures and beside still waters. He doesn't leave us hungry. He fills us. He, he serves us. He shepherds us with omnipotent strength. Because he's the good shepherd. And he himself is the food. He's the bread of life. He's the source. He's the sustenance. He's everything. So that's the first thing. The Messiah is going to come from a little place called Bethlehem because Bethlehem means house of bread and he is the bread that your soul needs. But look to, and here again, back to the same point that we gleaned out of numbers and the ultimate point, I think, for, for us today. Look at what Micah says about Bethlehem in verse 2 of chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little even to be named among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel. And so we see a contrast, right, between the greatness of this ruler who will come out of Bethlehem and the littleness of Bethlehem out of which he will come. Now again, it's a little anachronistic for us because in 2021, we all know where Bethlehem is. Some of you have been there. I've been there. It's one of the most famous cities in all of the Middle East, in all of the world. Today it's a tourist trap. Because the greatest event in history happened there. But way back in Micah's day, they're scratching their head going, where now? It's this tiny, backwater, insignificant, out of the way little place. Hardly worth even being counted among the clans of Judah. You wouldn't even put a dot on the map for it. Which again, is precisely why God ordained for Christ to be born there. Well, why? David was born there. Jesus is a descendant of David. But see, that's not the focus here. The point is the word little. The point is that Bethlehem is small. The point is, again, that God uses quiet, out-of-the-way little places to do things that will forever change the course of history and bring about eternal redemption to His people. You remember when God said in Zechariah, never despise the day of small things. God loves to work in the small things. God loves to bring big things out of the small things. You ever feel small? You ever feel like your life is just insignificant? You ever wonder what in the world could God ever do for me or with me or through me? God loves that. God works against all human instinct and tradition and convention and expectation. Again, because when He does that... We can't boast in the merits of man. We can only boast in His glorious mercy. 
See, we can't say, oh, well, of course God set his favor on Bethlehem because it's just such a, wow, Bethlehem, right? Of all the places in the ancient world, that's like the most opulent, glamorous, spectacular place. Have you been there? Again, I've been there. It's a famous place, but it's an ugly place. You, you, I don't know if it was just me, but when I was there, I just was like, this is lame, especially as it's just become commercialized and enterprised and marketed by all the people hawking wares to all of the people who come and want to see Bethlehem. Sadly, many of the people I think who want to come and want to see Bethlehem have never come and wanted to see Christ. Right? Nobody's going to say, well, of course he set his favor on Bethlehem. It's an ugly little place still. All we can say is, God doesn't work the way we would work. God is not impressed with the things we're impressed with. God doesn't do things to attract attention to our accomplishments. God does things in such a way as to highlight and to magnify His own glory. This is how God works. This is His M.O. That's why God chose Jacob instead of His older and physically stronger brother Esau. It's why God chose little shepherd boy David instead of all of his strapping brothers. To conquer Goliath with a rock from a slingshot. Why would God do it that way? Why not raise up another Goliath that would defeat Goliath? Big, strong guy, like Hollywood would cast him. Well, you can listen listen to David's own words to Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, just before he kills him. With a rock from a sling. David says... Staring up at this giant. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Why? So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves. Not with sword and spear. Because the battle belongs to the Lord. And so he's going to give you, Goliath, into our hand. Theme verse for all of us as Christians, as a church. It's not about the things that the world thinks are strong and wise and powerful and impressive. God loves to push those things aside. God loves to use the things that the world thinks are weak and foolish, doesn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians? In order to prove when his purposes happen anyway, that he's the one doing it. And so here's the point for all of us this Advent and Christmas. Can you... Frame your life up and have this perspective on your life according to this biblical truth that God is pleased to work through things and circumstances and places and people that have no relative glory of their own in order to manifest His great glory through them. Are you a sinner? Are you weak? Are you weary? Were you deserving of death and condemnation? Before He said, sinner, I love you, and now you are my child. And you may wear the label saint, holy unto the Lord, me? Oh, Only by grace. Only in spite of me. Are you just a clay pot, as Paul says? An earthenware vessel? Nothing impressive about it. Dime a dozen. Everybody's got a hundred of them in their house. They're all just slopped together out of mud and put there to put something in. 
all the paper bowls at the dollar store. Are you that? Yep. We all are. And yet God has filled us with the glories of the treasure of His Son and of the Gospel. For consider your calling, brothers, sisters. Not many of you were wise, according to earthly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised by the world's estimation, even the things that are considered to be nothing in the world's eyes, in order to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Here's the point. If we're looking at us to find confidence in our lives, if we're looking at what's strong in us, if we're looking at what's wise in us, good in us, we're never going to find confidence unless it is the fruit of sinful pride. We've got to look to Christ. We've got to look to Jesus. We've got to look to the ruler who came out of Jacob and was born as a baby, fragile human infant, in a little town called Bethlehem, where there wasn't even room for him in in what was probably the guest room of the house. So they had to put him in the the manger. They would would take a a piece of the earth and they would carve it out like like a bowl in order to put hay in there for the animals to eat or, or fill it with water for the animals to drink. And that was the only place to put the Son of God, the ruler of Bethlehem, the King of kings. Look to Him if you want confidence in your life, if you want hope in your heart, if you want strength, if you want peace, if you want joy. God uses clay pots. God uses redeemed sinners. God uses youngest sons. God uses tiny Middle Eastern cities and nations. God uses slingshots. God uses me, God uses you to show that he's not the least bit dependent on human greatness or achievement. And in order to magnify his glory and turn all human boasting instead into gratitude, thank you, God, for saving me. And so on the night of his birth, the angels sang, and so should we, glory to God in the highest. Jesus came out of Bethlehem. That baby in that cattle trough was Emmanuel, God with us, who came to us when we could not possibly make our way to Him in order to ransom our captive souls and give us life. And like His town of Bethlehem, He he was humble, He was obscure. He was born into poverty. He was fragile as a human baby in that manger. He had no form or majesty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. His whole life would be classified as that of a man of sorrows who was constantly acquainted with grief. Because in that, God would work so that by His being wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, by His stripes we would be healed. Because upon Him fell the chastisement that brought us peace. So, anything in this world that you want more than Christ? (laughs) Anything in your life, in your heart, that you trust more than Christ? Give praise to God. He is the bread of life. Come down from heaven to give life to your soul. And so prepare now to come to this table and strengthen your heart by feasting upon Him through faith and being filled with His grace so that we can continue to learn to walk humbly 
and to be filled with mercy and to live our lives in ways that magnify His glory and not our own. Let's give Him praise this morning as we pray to Him and and sing to Him and come to His table. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, how humbling Your Word is, how humbling Your love is, how humbling the incarnation of the only begotten Son of the Father is to us. And how grateful our hearts are that in spite of us, Father, He came and He lived and He died and He was raised in order that we might be saved. Thank You for loving us with this love. And may we estimate ourselves only in light of Him May we define ourselves only in light of what He has done and what He has made us to be in Him. And may we live, Father, every day and in every way and every step, may we live according to who we are in Christ Jesus. Father, we love You and we thank You and we give You praise and we sing Your praises now for the sake of Your glory. In the great name of Jesus, who is our Emmanuel and who has come and who has ransomed us and redeemed us and given us life. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Page 11, please stand together and let's sing all seven verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel.